It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be covering the case of Norris Gaynor in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Let's get right to it. At around 1.24 a.m. on January 12, 2006, Fort Lauderdale police were dispatched to 111 East Los Olas Boulevard on the Florida Atlantic University campus. Officer Taylor and his partner were first to arrive. When they got there, they found an elderly man sitting on a bench bleeding from his head. The man told them that he had been attacked by two men as he was walking toward Broward General holding a newspaper in his hand. He had accidentally dropped the papers, and when he bent down to pick them up, he was hit with a baseball bat on the back of the neck. When he tried to take the bat away from his attacker, he was struck again, this time in the head, and then hit again on the arm from his forearm to his wrist. He reported that the two men had fled the scene. He didn't know who they were, why they had attacked him, and all he knew was that one was dressed in black and the other was wearing a white shirt. Without a cell phone or anyone around, the man wandered the campus until he found a security guard and flagged him down. The guard called police. That man was 58-year-old Jacques Pierre. He was homeless and had been for some time, but things hadn't always been this way. According to the ledger, Pierre had emigrated to the United States from Haiti. His first marriage had ended in divorce, and at the time of his attack, he was estranged from his second wife, who he had married in 94. According to his wife, as she spoke to the outlet, Pierre, who had always been hardworking, just stopped going to work. His mental health began to decline and she moved out. In 2002, the bank foreclosed on his home and he was on the street. Neighbors recalled that Pierre was sad and at times they witnessed him standing on the sidewalk outside his estranged wife's home, staring, seemingly wondering himself how things had gone so terribly wrong. Pierre was also known to frequent a bus stop near the library, where he got after skateboarders for blocking the sidewalks. He referred to himself as the mayor of Fort Lauderdale, 
and the people in the community knew and loved their unofficial mayor. As Officer Taylor was talking with Mr. Pierre and taking his report, the security guard informed him that there was video surveillance in the area where Pierre had been attacked. The officer viewed the footage, and from the video, it was clear that the two men had attacked the man with baseball bats, completely unprovoked. Taylor secured the footage, and Mr. Pierre was transported to the hospital. Once he arrived, doctors treated the cut on his head and the injury to his left forearm and wrist. But the most serious of his injuries was a frontal bone skull fracture. The physician who treated Mr. Pierre believed he had been struck twice in the head with a blunt object. And there had to have been some force behind it, because the frontal bone is thick and hard to break. Mr. Pierre would spend two weeks in the hospital and need physical therapy in order to recover from his injuries. And Officer Taylor's shift from hell was just beginning. As Taylor and the other officers were taping off the scene and collecting evidence, another call came in for yet another assault. This time at Esplanade Park, which was about three-tenths of a mile away from the first location and a seven-minute walk. When Taylor arrived, he found an older black male slumped over the right side of a bench, bleeding profusely. He had several lacerations to his face, deep enough that brain matter was visible. His face was severely swollen, his eyes almost swollen completely shut. There was a pool of blood at his feet. He was struggling to breathe, choking on his own blood. Officers rendered aid while EMS was called. The man was transported to a nearby hospital and arrived at 3.22 a.m. Medical staff would later testify that the man was in grave condition when he got there, barely breathing and clinging on to life by a thread. A CT scan revealed that he had skull and facial fractures, as well as significant internal bleeding, and they believed the injuries were a result of blunt force trauma. Four hours after he was admitted, despite the best efforts of the doctors and nurses treating him, the man died. That man would later be identified as 45-year-old Norris Gaynor. As police worked the scene of the second attack, it seemed that someone was targeting homeless men of color. And when a third call of another beating came in, it was painfully obvious that's exactly what was happening. Just hours after police had initially responded to the second attack at Esplanade Park, four miles away outside the church by the sea, another man was found battered and screaming for police. When officers arrived, the man told them he had gone to sleep about 9 or 10 p.m. the previous night outside the church under a blanket. He was all by himself. At some point in the early morning hours of January 12th, he awoke to three men hitting him with either a baseball bat or a piece of wood. The men laughed as they repeatedly struck him. He began screaming for police and eventually they stopped hitting him and turned to walk away. As they walked away, he yelled at them again and they turned around and looked at him and smiled, seemingly pleased with what they had just done. After a few minutes, he saw a truck pull up from the church parking lot and then the men left. He didn't know who they were or why they had attacked him, but he was able to tell police that they were all very young white males, and that one of them was approximately 5 foot 7, 135 pounds, with short blonde hair, a clean-shaven face, and a light complexion. 
According to the ledger, the man who had been attacked was 49-year-old Raymond Perez. Mr. Perez had immigrated to the United States from the Dominican Republic, lived in New York, and enlisted in the Army. After his time as a soldier, he returned to New York and began to pursue a degree at New York University, but left NYU before receiving his degree to open a much-needed grocery store in Queens with friends. Unfortunately, the business failed. Perez reinvented himself again, became a cab driver, and was a cabbie for years before ultimately moving to Miami Beach in 1987 to get away from New York's cold weather. He held several different jobs as a shoe salesman, hotel clerk, and day laborer, always working hard to try and make ends meet. Around 1996, and the details are unclear, but Mr. Perez became homeless. But looking at his appearance, you would have never guessed that he had lived on the streets for years. Mr. Perez took pride in how he looked and got up before sunrise each day to take a shower at the Fort Lauderdale Beach public showers. He trimmed his mustache, shaved his face, and only wore collared shirts. He frequented the church by the sea and those in that area knew and loved him. According to court documents, Raymond Perez was transported to the hospital that January night with serious injuries. He had a head injury consistent with blunt force trauma, a laceration to his scalp that required stitches, an injury to his right knee, right wrist, and cuts on his right arm. Perez would later be discharged from the hospital and transferred to an assisted living facility to heal both the physical and mental trauma of what he had suffered that night. Mr. Perez and the first man to be attacked, Mr. Pierre, were battered and beaten, but alive. As we know, the same could not be said for Norris Gaynor. Investigators collected evidence at the three scenes where the men had been attacked, and Norris Gaynor's body was transported to the medical examiner's office for autopsy later in the day of January 12, 2006. And what police, EMTs, and the medical professionals who had attempted to save Mr. Gaynor's life already knew, was confirmed by the pathologist. The beating of Norris Gaynor was brutal, horrific, and Mr. Gaynor never had a chance. The list of injuries was extensive. He had suffered a broken nose, multiple cuts and bruises to his forehead and to the back of his hands, five cracked ribs, and bruising to his back. The medical examiner determined that he had been struck approximately four times in the back alone. His head was extremely swollen. Mr. Gaynor had suffered multiple skull fractures, several above his eyes, and a depressed skull fracture so deep that part of his brain had been crushed and cut by the sharp edges of the bone. There was extensive bleeding on his brain. It was determined that multiple objects were used to assault Mr. Gaynor. And all of these injuries were to the back of his body or above the waist. There was no bruising on the front of his body or below his waist, suggesting that the attack on Norris Gaynor was so vicious he never had a chance to stand up and even attempt to defend himself. The cause of death? Blunt force trauma. Manner? Homicide. In a matter of hours, Fort Lauderdale police had two brutal assaults and a murder all within a five-mile radius, all of the victims homeless men. But who would do this and why? 
investigators didn't have time to waste. They needed the answers to both of those questions and quick. They feared another attack. Those answers did come pretty quickly, and the who was shocking enough, but the why was downright disgusting. While they didn't have much to go on other than a general description of a group of young white males, they did have surveillance video of that first attack on Mr. Pierre, which was released hours after the beatings. The video showed two of the assailants pretty clearly. Local news stations broadcast the video on morning news reports on that January 12th day. The brutality and utter senselessness of what had happened sparked outrage in not only Fort Lauderdale, but the entire nation. The story was soon picked up nationally, and the senseless beating of Jacques Pierre was shown on television screens across the world. Tips came in like crazy, and it wasn't long before police had a list of names a mile long. But as they filtered through the list, two names kept coming up, and those two names matched the description the two survivors had given, as well as a few witnesses who had seen a group of young males around the Florida Atlantic University campus that night. Police quickly identified 18-year-old Brian Hooks and 17-year-old Thomas Daughtery as the two individuals seen on that video. They were teenagers. As they worked to identify the other suspects, track down the boys, and obtain search warrants, those teen boys started talking to friends. One of those friends was a young woman who had known Thomas Daughtery since they were children. She recalled to investigators that on Thursday morning, January 12, 2006, the same day as the attacks, she had called Daughtery, concerned that he hadn't been at school over the previous days. He had told her that he was in trouble and asked that she meet him at his house to talk. She headed over, however, when she arrived, he wasn't there, so she waited. After some time, Daughtery pulled up, but he wasn't alone. He was with 18-year-old Billy Ammons. The pair pulled up, smoking a joint. The young woman asked what in the hell was going on, and Daughtery told her that, quote, They were pinning him for murder, that somebody was dead, and for beating down a bum. She left, but later that morning, Daughtery asked her to come back over, so she did. When she got back to the house the second time, Daughtery was there with Brian Hooks and Billy Ammons. Daughtery had called her over to say goodbye. He was packing his bags and planned to dip out of town. He hugged her, kissed her, told her he loved her, and left. But as he was on his way out the door, he told her to watch the news at noon. Her jaw must have hit the floor as she watched the 12 o'clock broadcast and the video of Daughtery and Hooks beating Mr. Pierre. She called Daughtery and told him she didn't want to have anything more to do with him. According to an affidavit obtained by the ledger, by the time that noon story aired, Hooks and Daughtery were already well on their way out of Dodge. Neighbors witnessed both of the boys sneaking out of their homes, suitcases in hand, between 9.30 and 11 a.m. Hooks headed towards relatives in Indiana, and Daughtery went home to Mommy in Tennessee. But they wouldn't be gone too long. The Associated Press reported just three days after the beatings on January 15th that Brian Hooks and Thomas Daughtery had both been positively identified 
fled the state of Florida and police were working with their family attorneys, negotiating their surrender. And further, both boys were facing two counts of attempted first-degree murder and one count of first-degree murder. That deal must have been negotiated pretty quick and in a hurry, because the next day the Sun-Sentinel reported that Hooks and Daughtery were in custody. A detective on the case commented that both of the teens surrendered and that they were, quote, quiet and then invoked their right to not speak. Hooks and Daughtery could invoke their right to remain silent all they wanted. Two people had already come forward who actually witnessed the fatal beating of Norris Gaynor and identified Hooks and Daughtery as the aggressors. They had the surveillance video, the eyewitness testimony, the testimony of the surviving men, and witnesses these teenage boys had made incriminating statements to. And then there was the third guy. Remember, Mr. Perez had told police that three men had attacked him. Other witnesses reported seeing a group of three to four men in the area. A third arrest was just around the corner. 18-year-old William Billy Ammons was arrested the day after Hooks and Daughtery. While Hooks and Daughtery kept their lips sealed, Billy Ammons voluntarily gave a videotaped statement to police. According to the spokesman, Ammons told investigators he had shot Norris Gaynor with a paintball gun as his two friends beat the man to death, and that he had taken part in the beating of Mr. Perez. Amons admitted that he had hit Perez with a golf club, stating, I went up like a putter to tee off and hit him. It came as no surprise that Amons' lawyer tried to get that videotape statement thrown out and deemed inadmissible at his pending trial. But in January of 2008, two years after Gaynor's death, the judge ruled that it was 100% admissible and the jury would get to see it live and in color. Three months after that ruling and the multiple motions that came before it, as everyone looked ahead to not one, not two, but three trials, Amons decided to strike a deal with prosecutors. And in May of 2008, Billy Amons pled guilty to third-degree murder and aggravated battery and agreed to testify against his friends. Thomas Daughtery, and Brian Hooks, in exchange for a prison sentence of between 10 and 20 years. It was decided that Hooks and Daughtery would be tried together, and in early September 2008, the trial kicked off. The prosecution presented its case. Officers were called to testify about the brutality of the beatings. Multiple witnesses identified Hooks and Daughtery as being in the area, there was eyewitness testimony, but nothing was as damning as when Billy Ammons took the stand and recounted the night of January 11th through the morning of January 12th, 2006. According to court documents, Ammons testified that on Wednesday night, January 11th, 2006, Brian Hooks and Thomas Daughtery and another juvenile, we're going to call G, came to the house where Ammons was living with his mother and stepfather at about 11 p.m. Side note, the other juvenile we're referring to as G was identified in court documents and testified during the trial. We'll get to his testimony in just a hot minute. But I have chosen not to name him since he was a child at the time of the crime, took no part in the actual beatings, and cooperated with police. Back to the story. 
all four teenagers were hanging out at Ammon's house, smoking weed and drinking vodka straight out of the bottle. After about 45 minutes of copious drinking and smoking, they got bored and decided to go for a ride to the beach. Ammons drove the crew in his black Chevy Blazer. They made their way towards Florida Atlantic University and saw a man sitting on a bench. That man was Jacques Pierre. At that point, either Daughtery or Hook suggested that it might be fun to mess with the man sitting on the bench. Everyone agreed, and Ammons threw the vehicle in park. Daughtery and Hooks took baseball bats from the truck, shoved them down their pants to hide them as they walked toward Mr. Pierre. They ran to some skateboarders along the way, and Hooks asked them if they wanted to beat up some bums with them. They did not, but Daughtery and Hooks continued towards Mr. Pierre. Ammons and G stayed on the other side of the road, but they were close enough to see Daughtery run at the man and take a swing at him with the bat. Mr. Pierre pushed Daughtery in defense and he fell down and dropped the bat. Hooks then took over, ran up to Mr. Pierre and struck him in the shoulder. Immediately afterwards, Ammons, Daughtery and the others walked back to the blazer laughing. They hopped in the truck and headed back to Ammon's home. They stayed at the house for around 30 minutes and smoked and drank some more. And then decided to go out again and find another victim. Ammons armed himself with a paintball gun and they headed back towards the campus, riding past the scene of the first crime, noting the yellow crime scene tape. Ammons parked near the Performing Arts Center and Hooks and Daughtery went in search of another victim. That's when they came across Norris Gaynor laying down on a bench. Ammons and G were still standing by the truck, rolling up another joint when Daughtery came back and said they had found their next target. Ammons watched as Daughtery raised the bat and struck Mr. Gaynor in the head. At that point, Ammons began firing the paintball gun, shooting it between five and ten times. When Ammons saw that Mr. Gaynor was bleeding, he stopped firing and ran towards a set of stairs. The other three met him there. As they were walking away, Daughtery turned around and saw Mr. Gaynor sitting on the bench, cradling his head in his hands. Daughtery and Hooks ran back towards him. Hooks hit him with a rake and Daughtery hit him twice with a bat. At that point, Mr. Gaynor slouched over. Amons ran back to the truck where G was waiting, and they left without Hooks and Daughtery. They went looking for them, and after several attempts at calling their cell phones, one of them called back and told Amons where they were, and he picked them up and drove them back to his house. Once they got home, G left. The three remaining continued their drinking-smoking marathon and again got bored with it, left once again to find another homeless man to attack. Hooks drove his vehicle this time, and they spotted a man by a bus stop on 17th Street. They pulled into the Church by the Sea parking lot. Hooks grabbed a golf club and handed Ammons a play sword, and Daughtery was still toting the bat. They intended to attack the man they seen at the bus stop, but stumbled upon Mr. Perez lying on the ground outside the church, sleeping under a thin blanket. The trio decided he'd make as good as a victim as any, and all charged at Mr. Perez, striking him with their weapons. 
Thankfully, Mr. Perez made it to his feet and began yelling. They didn't want to get caught, so they ran back to Hook's truck and hightailed it back to Eamon's house. I guess they figured they'd cause enough havoc for one night because according to Eamon's, when they got back to the house, everyone went their separate ways. G's testimony was much the same of that of Eamon's, with the addition that when Hooks and Daughtery got back in the SUV, after the attacks, they were just, quote, kind of like excited. I just want to reiterate that this entire scenario had unfolded because these little tick turds were bored. A man lost his life and two others were altered forever because these shit stains couldn't think of anything better to do with their time. The defense attempted to paint the whole thing as teenage mischief and argued that the boys didn't have the intent to murder anyone. But the jury begged to differ. And on September 19th, 2008, both Daughtery and Hooks were found guilty of second-degree murder and two counts of second-degree attempted murder. While it wasn't an across-the-board win for the prosecution, the state was seeking first-degree, the sentence they were facing didn't change. Both could still be sentenced to life. The death penalty had never been in play due to their ages at the time the crimes were committed. But before Daughtery and Hooks would be sentenced, the former friend that had testified against them would learn his punishment. On September 25th, 2008, Billy Ammons was back in the courtroom. This time, he was on the hot seat. And his fate was in the hands of Broward Circuit Judge Cynthia Imperato. Before he was handed down his sentence, he was given the opportunity to address the victims and the judge. According to the Sentinel, Ammons addressed Norris Gaynor's family first, stating that he knew no words could ever express how sorry he was for the death of their son, but still wanted them to know that he was truly sorry. He then addressed Pierre and Perez and said, I used to look down on guys like you with ignorance and stupidity. I now look up to you guys with admiration for the strength you showed in picking up the pieces and moving forward. He asked the court for mercy and a chance to turn a bad experience into something good, further stating, Life is about giving, not taking. And before this happened, I had been taking for way too long. It was revealed that Ammons had been on suicide watch for much of the three years he was held in jail prior to his plea deal and sentence. He broke down after prosecutors shook his hand and thanked him for the testimony he gave at the trial of his former friends. After the exchange, he placed his head on the defense table and his body shook as he sobbed. Prosecutors requested the judge sentence Amons to 13 years. His attorney asked for 10, but Judge Imperato said from the bench that she had originally had her mind set on the maximum, which was 20 years but felt Amons was truly remorseful and imposed a sentence of 15 years. With that, Amons was led from the courtroom to begin his sentence, his face red and streaked with tears. On October 23, 2008, the ringleader of the group, Thomas Daughtery, was sentenced to life in prison. The next day, co-defendant Brian Hooks was sentenced to 30 years behind bars. But the story isn't over yet. Years later, Thomas Daughtery's life sentence was reduced to 40 years after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that juveniles 
should not be sentenced to life in prison, even for murder, under most circumstances. Daughtery was 17 years old at the time the crime was committed. Both Brian Hooks and Thomas Daughtery later appealed on the grounds that the jury was given flawed instructions, leading to their respective convictions. Their cases were taken all the way up to the Florida Supreme Court. In 2014, Brian Hooks won his appeal and was granted a new trial. In 2017, Thomas Daughtery was also granted a new trial. But there would be no new trials, and instead Hooks and Daughtery would plead guilty to second-degree murder. On September 28, 2018, they were resentenced, Hooks to 22 years and Daughtery receiving 25. Weeks later, on October 15th, Billy Amons was released from jail after completing his 15-year sentence. Brian Hooks is currently housed at the Quincy Annex Correctional Institute in Quincy, Florida. His projected release date is September 20th of 2024. Thomas Daughtery is serving his time at Everglades Correctional Institution in Dade County. He is projected to be released on May 19th, 2027. But there's no resentencing, no projected release date, no time served for the family of Norris Gaynor. Jock Pierre, Raymond Perez, and Norris Gaynor weren't just nameless, faceless, homeless men, as many of the articles and news reports portrayed them. They were and are human beings with families that loved them. They lived lives, had hopes and dreams just like anybody else. Homelessness can happen to any one of us at any point in time, and their current state in life didn't reflect their value as humans. Norris Gaynor was born in San Diego, California on June 11, 1960. He was adopted as a toddler by Sam and Georgia Gaynor. His father, Sam, was in the Navy, and his mom, Georgia, raised Norris, his sister, Simone, and two younger brothers, Russell and Jerome. Norris loved football. He played in high school, but his real passion was drawing. His father, Sam, recalled to the ledger that his son had real talent, stating if he drew a tiger, that tiger was alive. When he was a teenager, he lost his seven-year-old baby brother, Jerome, to cancer. This was hard on Norris because as the oldest son, he always saw himself as a protector of his siblings but there was nothing he could do for his brother. He graduated high school and then served in the army for four years. Then his mental health took a turn. He got into some legal trouble, but seemingly got things back on track. The last time his brother Russell saw him in person, he was running a fancy restaurant in Virginia Beach and driving a Jaguar. As the years passed, Norris drifted out of his family's lives. There were letters and phone calls, but his family wasn't aware that his life had spiraled and he was homeless on the streets of Fort Lauderdale. Maybe it was mental illness or maybe Norris just wanted to protect them from the heartache as he had always tried to do, or maybe some combination of both. Whatever the reason, the circumstances Norris found himself in left him vulnerable and he lost his life because of it. In the days following the initial attacks, Billy Joel, the piano man himself, spoke out about the beatings to a packed crowd at his concert at the Bank Atlantic Center in nearby Sunrise, Florida. 
According to the Sentinel, he told the crowd he had read about the recent beatings and he had once been homeless himself. Had he been attacked while living on the streets, he might not be around to perform. I'll say it again. Homelessness has nothing to do with the value of a life. Norris Gaynor was laid to rest at the Forest Lawn Cemetery in Fort Lauderdale. His family's hope is that his story doesn't die with him. His sister Simone said it best when she spoke to the Sun Sentinel and stated, I hope that people continue to talk about it, not as those homeless beatings, but they say his name, Norris Gaynor. He has a name, he has a face. May we all remember Norris Gaynor as the son, brother, veteran, friend, free spirit, and artist he was. As always, you can find more information on this case or any of the others I've covered on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcast. New episodes drop every Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button because I'll be bringing you an all new case next week. You can finally get all your episodes ad free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. I'll also post a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.